We have been uh, in the series, and if you haven't gotten your Advent book, we have a few left, I see. And um, now that it's about halfway through or so, maybe a little more, um, we, I hope that you've been reading along and following along uh, in your Advent devotional book called Born the King. Uh, it's been a good read, uh, and I've read ahead, and it gets good, and it is all good. <laughs> and um, the sermons that go along with sort of the topics that are discussed on each week um, it's very relatable, and, and you can kind of look at it and say, I think I read that somewhere before. It's probably in your devotion time this week. So pick up a book, uh, see myself if you need one, and uh, that's our gift to you. If you would like one to take home, one per family, there's a few left. So see me after church, and we'll do that for sure. But Born the King. If you have your Bibles with you or your apps or however you get there, turn this morning to the book of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, for those that don't know, it's in the New Testament, right about the middle of your Bible. When you start to get right over to the New Testament, oh, there's Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I, and I, and I am not kidding when I say, for those of you that don't know, because, well, if you don't know, I sat where you sit. And I wandered into a church one Sunday morning, and I didn't know who Daniel was, and I didn't have any idea who David and Goliath was. I had no idea where Matthew was. So it helped me out. When the pastor said, that's in your New Testament, flip over, go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, so it helps. But if you got the book of Matthew, turn to chapter 11 this morning. And it is good to be back. It's good to be home. Um, if you're visiting with us, uh, we were always on vacation with my family. I don't normally dress like this, but this is what happens when you don't pack church clothes. We literally got up at 3.15 this morning and got on a plane around 6.30 and drove straight here. So that's how much I love you folks. So I expect a little participation this morning. All right? A little participation. It's a dialogue, right? Not a monologue. If you have Matthew chapter 11, say amen. We're going to be reading for that in a moment, from that in a moment. But let's pray first. Can we do that? Let's pray for the, pray for the word. Father, we come before you and present our bodies as living sacrifices this morning. Because that's what the Apostle Paul told us to do, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. Father, we pray that as we're focused on things of the Spirit right now, focused on your Word, that we give you our full attention. We pray, Lord, that you would bolster and strengthen and confirm our faith in you. Make us stronger going out from this place than we were coming in. God, I pray that through the fellowship together, the songs that we've sung, and the reading of your Word, that we would be equipped for whatever comes our way this week, in Jesus' powerful name, amen and amen. Back in World War II, there was a man named David Greenglass. Anybody know the story? David Greenglass was a traitor to the United States of America. Greenglass sold secrets to the Russians. Atomic secrets. And having done that, he got caught realized that the, the feds were on to him and he fled down to Mexico and while he was down there his co-conspirators figured out a way that he could meet with the Russian ambassador of Mexico City however his identity was absolutely vital identifying that man to those people was paramount so Greenglass was given six signs in advance this is how they will know that this is you Six prearranged signs 
that would be known to him and to known to those who he would meet. Number one, once he was in Mexico City, Greenglass was to write a note to the ambassador signing his name as I. Jackson. And number two, after three days, he was to go to the Plaza de Colón in Mexico City. Number three, he was to stand before the statue of Columbus. Number four, he was to have his middle finger placed in the guidebook. In addition, number five, when he was approached, he was to say what a magnificent statue that it was and that he was from Oklahoma. And number six, the secretary, secretary to the ambassador would then give him a passport so that he could leave the country. Those six identifying signs made it impossible not to identify the right person. During Christmas and during the Advent book and you're reading along, and I appreciate that, we've looked at signs given, and we often look at signs given from the Old Testament, predictions, prophecies, prearranged predictions as to the identity of Jesus Christ, the identity of the Messiah. And there are not six, but over 300. And we're going to go through all 300 this morning. Number one. All right, warming you all up. We're going to hit some of the highlights. But one thing is obvious. God wanted to make sure that it was impossible not to identify Jesus. Or it was impossible not to mistakenly identify the Messiah. He wanted us to make sure, and he wanted the Jewish nation to make sure of who he was when he came. So prediction after prediction was given. For example, Isaiah said that he would be born of a virgin. Micah said he would be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Hosea, the prophet, said he would be called out of Egypt, and he was. The prophet said he would arise out of Galilee, and he did. Isaiah called him a servant, and he was. And then the apostle Paul said he came at just the right time, as I said this morning, in the fullness of time. And when you put all those puzzle pieces together, you have an unmistakably accurate composite picture of who the Messiah was to be. No question. One of the descriptions of what he would do is that he would perform miracles. You would also know that the Messiah has come because he performs miracles. And that would be one of the authenticating, confirming signs that he was the one because he could perform these miracles. So Isaiah 29 and Isaiah chapter 35, it says this, The eyes of the blind shall see, the ears of the deaf Will, the deaf will be unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Predictions made by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. But there were also others who believed that when the Messiah comes, you'll be able to spot him because of his miracles. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? You ever heard that phrase, the Dead Sea Scrolls? These are scrolls that were found in the desert caves of Qumran down by the Dead Sea. And they were placed in these caves. Scholars believe that they were placed in these caves before the time of Christ. And one particular document found in a cave, number four, actually, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the archaeological dig, found a statement in a scroll that reads this. The heavens and the earth will obey the Messiah. 
he will heal heal the sick, resurrect the dead, and to the poor he will announce glad tidings. And so when Jesus came on the scene, almost almost immediately miracles happened. If you'll remember his first miracle, right? Changed the water into wine in Cana. But then he healed people who were sick. He raised the dead. He controlled forces of nature. He calmed the storms. And it was so notorious, his miracles, that even his enemies, people who disagreed with him, were forced to say, you know, something's up here. Even the people who wanted to kill him said, there's something going on with this Messiah, this Jesus that, the, that, that, that people are talking about, that we see these miracles, something is up. In the Jewish Talmud, did you know that Jesus is called a sorcerer? And why a sorcerer? Because they knew of all the signs that accompanied him wherever he went. There are 35 recorded miracles that Jesus performed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 35. But we know from John's writing that these weren't even the only miracles. There were more, because John writes at the end of his book, and many other miraculous signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Man, I'd like to know what they were. Wouldn't you? Maybe they they just did the big ones, you know, the raising from the dead kind of stuff. But who knows who he healed? Who knows who he spoke to? Who knows? The other miracles, the other how many ever, many more, John said. But he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing have life in his name. One of those who believed in him was a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And for time's sake, I'm going to shorten his name. J the B. J the B for short. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. He believed in him. But in chapter 11 of Matthew, where we are today, John is in prison. And he's not getting out. He's going to die in jail. And while he's there, John the Baptist struggles. He doubts. His faith becomes rocky. So much so that he needs to ask a question and find out what's going on with Jesus. We're going to read it in a minute but what I want to do is take the opportunity in the first six verses of Matthew chapter 11 to give you the three stages of faith in respect to the person and work of Jesus Christ and they're very simple devout believers wrestle with their faith you'll see it in John devout believers wrestle with their faith and then we'll go on to the second stage developing believers reason through their faith And finally, determined believers remain in their faith. We'll see that in all all these verses when we read them. So first, devout believers wrestle in their faith. It's not there. Verse 1 says, It came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, John's disciples, and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered 
and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and which you see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. I love that phrase. Right before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Hmm. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. Forerunner. You've heard the term forerunner before? It's the one who goes before. He's the guy that came before Jesus. And then when Jesus came, he pointed to him and said, that's the guy. That's the Messiah. That's the one I've been speaking about. So John is the forerunner. And Jesus himself would talk about John in very flattering ways that we'll read about. Don't read ahead yet. But who himself was predicted, John the Baptist was predicted in the the Old Testament. And this is Matthew's point in verse 10. He's quoting Malachi, the prophet, in chapter 3. He says that, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And here is John predicted in the Old Testament along with Jesus as the one who would point to him. And John... He has no idea why he's sitting rotting in prison. And John must have been reflecting back. He he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And they all come out and, and the religious leaders are like, Who are you? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? John's pointing forward to Jesus and he said, They say, Who are you? Are you the Messiah, John? Are you the Christ? He says, No, 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 I'm not. And they say, Well, who are you? And he quotes Isaiah 40. He says, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And that's a quote right out of the Old Testament. So John is saying, I am not the message. I'm just the messenger. He's the word. I'm just getting people's attention. I'm just a lowly road worker pointing the way that you need to follow him. And John the Baptist was an uncommon man with a common misunderstanding. Let me say that again. John the Baptist, J the B, was an uncommon man with a very, very common misunderstanding. A common misunderstanding as to who the Messiah would be. Jesus said in verse 11 of John the Baptist, about John the Baptist, he was the greatest man ever born of a woman. There is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now John was an unusual guy. If you know anything about it, if you know it, went to some of the Bible, VBS, Bible classes, Sunday school, if you were born on the altar and you've been around church a little while, 
you know that John was a little bit of a different dude. A little bit of a different guy. You know, he hung out in the desert regions, far off. He ate bugs. Wish the kids were in here to hear about that. And he wore like animal fur. And, 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 and so PETA would not like this guy at all. Y'all know what PETA stands for, right? People eating tasty animals. And he was very different in his... Come on, y'all, I've been gone for like a week. He was very different in his approach to preaching and speaking to the masses. And he just kind of called it like he saw it. He was a very direct person. And he told, he told people when he saw them, repent. Repent. He would look right in their face and say, repent. Because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he would just call it like it was. And that's one of the reasons he got into trouble, how he ended up in prison. Because there was a guy named Zacharias. And his mom was Elizabeth. Zacharias was John the Baptist's father. His mother was Elizabeth. And both of them were old. Zacharias, his dad, he was a priest in the temple. And his mom, Elizabeth, well, they were past having children, let's say. And as older people, we met somebody on vacation. How old was that woman? 56, 50-something. Had a six-year-old with her. Hers. Y'all imagine that. But these people, Zacharias and Elizabeth, were, were beyond having children. And, and, and they'd never even had a child. She was infertile, in fact, until one day when Zacharias is in the temple doing his thing, you know, burning incense, and the angel Gabriel shows up and says, John, you and your, Zacharias, you and your wife are going to have a baby. You're going to have a little boy. And Zacharias, even though he saw the angel, he didn't really believe him. He asked him for a sign. He goes, okay, I'll give you a sign. You won't be able to talk for nine months. How about that? Wives, do not elbow your husbands. Do not point. Do not nod. Just look straight ahead. But he says, okay, I'll give you a sign. You won't be able to talk for nine months. Whoop, shut, his, shut his mouth for nine months. How's that? Kind of a curse on him almost. Nine months. There's your sign. But maybe it was more of a blessing or, or I won't go there for Elizabeth. Um, who couldn't even have a conversation with him, though. She couldn't even talk to him for nine months. And it must have been frustrating, all humor aside. You know, he couldn't, couldn't have a meaningful conversation with this guy for nine months, her husband. And so it's this time, you know, Elizabeth starts growing, and the baby starts kind of showing, and, 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 and she's about six months pregnant, and her cousin Mary up in Nazareth miraculously gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And, and we definitely know that story. And she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth down in Jerusalem. And as soon as Mary walks through the door... And says, hey, something happens. And Elizabeth says to Mary, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ear, the baby leaped for joy inside my womb. So John the Baptist is already excited to meet Jesus. Because in the womb, Elizabeth says he's jumping up and down. And the day he was born came, and Zacharias, remember, couldn't talk. And so when they say, what's his name going to be? He has to write it down in a tablet. And write it down. And he said, his name will be called John. And then finally, when he can speak, he says to his newborn boy, and you, my son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. And that's exactly who, who he grew up to be. And he grew up as the forerunner, pointing the way, preparing the way. Another fact about John the Baptist, did you know that, that he and Jesus were actually cousins? We know this to be true because their mothers were cousins. So their mothers were first cousins. Jesus and John were. 
Y'all are still awake, some of you. Which means they knew each other. And they'd probably gone and hung out. You know, they saw each other at the Thanksgiving. But family time. They would have family time, I'm sure. And they would see each other. And they would hang out together. I'm sure they knew each other. And I've always added that that this, this adds authenticity to the testimony of John the Baptist. Because how many of you would say, you know what, my cousin is God? How many of you would say, my cousin is the one who takes away the sins of the world? Some of you would say, my cousin has added a few sins to the world. Don't point. But John was absolutely convinced that his cousin Jesus was the Messiah predicted by the prophets. Something happens to John. He gets arrested. John gets arrested and put in prison. Why did he get arrested? Well, because I said he calls it like it is. So when Herod Antipas, the ruler, dumped his wife and married his brother Philip's wife, you all think the Bible's boring. You're boring. Read some of this stuff. Her name was Herodias and brought her home. John let it loose. He said, basically, you're a vile, wicked sinner against God. (laughs) Well, that didn't go over very well with Herod. So Herod had him put in prison where he stays until his death. And while he's in prison, there John starts to doubt. He hears about Jesus. He hears what he's doing and saying, but he thinks, well, I'm riding, riding here in jail while the Messiah that I'm convinced is the Messiah and pointed the way to is out there doing his thing. So John's doubt is based on an unfulfilled expectation. Remember I said John was an uncommon man with a common understanding and this common misunderstanding. And this common misunderstanding was simply this, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to first set up his kingdom. John wanted to be there to see that. Because it says in the Old Testament, doesn't say that he'll do it first, but it says that he will set up a kingdom. And John would have known the prophets. He would have known what Daniel in chapter 2 and Daniel in chapter 7 said that the Son of Man will establish an everlasting kingdom. He's in jail going, where is this kingdom? And how come I'm in jail? And he starts to doubt. And I call this the dungeon of doubt for John because he's going down a road in his mind that some of us can go down. He's probably thinking thoughts like, you know, Jesus... He, did, he said up in Nazareth, I've come to set the captives free. And Jesus, didn't he say in the synagogue that I've come to set liberty those who are bound? Set at liberty. So John's thinking, I'm bound and I'm not seeing any liberty. If he came to set free the captives, why am I still here? So John doubts. And point number one is this. Devout believers wrestle with their faith. It's not unusual (laughs) for even spiritual leaders like John the Baptist to have times of uncertainty. Moses second-guessed his calling. Jeremiah the prophet wanted to throw in the towel. He wanted to quit. Jeremiah said, I don't even want to say another word. I'm out. Elijah the prophet wanted to die. He said, it's better I wasn't even born. And so as I go through the Bible, I find these great giants of the faith from time to time struggling, wrestling with their faith. And in fact, this might encourage some of you this morning. If you were to chase down 
the word doubt in the New Testament, you'll discover that almost every single occasion except for one that I found, it refers to believers, not unbelievers, believers. For instance, Jesus said to his disciples, if you remember, oh, ye of little faith. On another occasion, he said, how long will you doubt? And then after the resurrection, it's a very interesting passage. You can check it out in Matthew 28. But it says this, when they saw him raised from the dead, he was dead for three days, and then they saw him again. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. I don't know about you, but if I saw someone die, and then I saw him three days later at the Walmart, I might do a double take. I don't think I would doubt. I might have to be like Thomas. Dude, is that is that you? But it's amazing. Some of them doubted right after the resurrection. He's up from the dead. And some are going, eh, I don't know. I don't know about this. They struggled. They wrestled. And so it's almost as if you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You know what I mean? You have to invest. You have to, have, you have to kind of buy in before you can challenge what you even believe in. So it's not uncommon. And here's how it works. You find a believer who has faithfully served the Lord year after year after year, and then something happens. The loss of a child. The loss of freedom because of some debilitating disease. At that person, that, that person at some point is going to go stop and go, you know, God, why did you allow this to happen? Where were you, God, when, when I was really hurting? And John the Baptist, for 18 months, had been preaching the gospel, pointing to Jesus to thousands of people, and, and they were listening and being changed, and now suddenly he's in a pit in the middle of the desert. And he's in the lower part of this palace of the pit of about a year's, for about a year's time, and he finally dies, is killed there. So he doubted, even John the Baptist. He wonders. And I bet even right now I'm speaking to some people who have had some doubts or might be having some doubts right now. You're at church. You've been. Some of you have been drugged here. Some of you have been convinced by a loved one to attend and come, and, and you should come, and you pacify them maybe perhaps or whatever your situation is, but you're sitting here and you're listening, but you wonder all this stuff that Christians say about Jesus. Could it really be true? Is this thing really, can I really touch this thing? You're saying to me, I have my doubts. Well, let me encourage you to do with your doubts what John the Baptist did with his. First of all, he went to Jesus. He couldn't get out of prison, so he sent some emissaries by proxy to go ask Jesus the question, are you really the one? Are you really the guy? Are you really the one? Or should we be looking for somebody else? And I love the fact that with his doubt about Jesus, he goes and talks to Jesus. I just want to know, are you really the one? Let me encourage you to, to this morning. If you are doubting, you know, there's a lot of study you can do. There's a lot of books you can read. But why not first take it to Jesus? Take it to him first. That's what John did. And I'll give you a challenge. And, and it's what, I, what I've read, a friend of mine actually does this, even to atheists. He says, I love talking to atheists, and I don't, 
get into all the physical or philosophical arguments at first, he says. I just say, you know what, let me give you a challenge. Are you willing to accept my 21-day challenge? He says, for 21 days, it'll take you 10 minutes a day. I want you to read one chapter in the Gospel of John every single day. Read one chapter. And as you go through, ask one simple question. Who is Jesus Christ? Or at least, who does he claim to be? Or at the very least, who does John, in writing the book, the author of John, claim Jesus to be? Start there and see what will happen with that first. So devout believers wrestle with their faith. There's something else about faith. And that is developing believers will reason through their faith. In verse 4, Jesus had an answer to give John. And he, and he gives it to the disciples who come to ask him the question. And after asking, he says to them, go and tell John the things that you hear. And that you see the blind see the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Notice the answer is not a simple yes or no. Are you the one? That's the question. Jesus didn't go. Yeah, I'm the guy. He answers it by appealing to two things. One is personal experience. Go tell him what you see. Go tell him what you hear. He's in prison. He can't physically see what's going on. These guys are out. They see it. Go tell them what you hear. Personal experience. Second, biblical prophecy. Personal discovery, personal experience, and biblical prophecy. He gives a list of things that are mentioned in the Old Testament prophets. Two lines of evidence, I believe, that are vital for your faith. There is the subjective element, right? Which is what you experience, what you have seen. And then there's the object, objective element, which is outside your realm of experience. Those are the evidences that corroborate what you have experienced. So the first one, personal discovery. Or as I say, human experience. What have you seen? Go tell them what you've heard. And I say all that to say this. Your personal testimony is one of the most powerful tools you have in your spiritual arsenal. People ask you questions. You know, you start before you start opening your Bible and getting into all the the who's it's and what's it's and what for's. Before you do anything, you just say, you know what? Let me just tell you what happened to me. Let me just tell you what Jesus did. Let me tell you the day I met Christ. And this is how my life has been different afterwards. You have that story. Tell that story. Now you're going to need more after that probably. And, but begin with that. Begin with this. Let me tell you how Jesus changed my life. All of us know people who have an impactful story that they didn't know Jesus. They came to know Jesus and they, it changed their life. And if you know him as Savior, tell that story. Tell the story. It'll have an impact, more of an impact than opening your Bible and pointing to verses of something that they're not sure of anyway. Give them something to see, something to hear. You have that story. It's, it's subjective as well. Notice what Jesus now appeals in bibl- to biblical prophecy. In verse 5, he gives a list. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. How's that for a resume? 
And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, why does Jesus tell all those things? Why does he go into that? Because he knew it would make, make an impact with John. He knew that John knew, his, knew the scriptures. He knew that John loved the prophet Isaiah especially because he quoted from him more than any other prophet. He knew that John knew all these prophecies. Like Isaiah 35, which predicted the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will walk. And in Isaiah chapter 61, there's a reference to that. Isaiah 61, Jesus something something Jesus quoted in the synagogue in Nazareth when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, had, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. It's right there in the scripture. So go back to John and tell him that I am the man with the message and my message is proven by my miracles. I'm the man with the message and the miracles to prove it. Go tell John that. And when it comes to miracles... I've discovered a couple things with miracles. People make two mistakes that I see concerning miracles. Number one, they naturalize them. And what I mean by naturalize, they make the term miracle a loose term. People use that term too loosely. Well, every baby born is a miracle. Well, it's not really. 353,000 were born today. And tomorrow, there'll be another 353,000 born tomorrow. It happens every single day. It's not uncommon. Miracle, by definition, is an extraordinary, uncommon event. Every sunset is a miracle. Well, sure, you and I can't do it, but it doesn't mean that it's a miracle. It happens every single day. Well, it's a miracle that I got a great parking spot at the Walmart. That may actually be a miracle because I never get a good parking spot. But you understand that it cheapens the term, right? It sort of degrades the definition. And so people naturalize them. And another mistake people make is people trivialize miracles. They try to explain them away. Somebody says, well, right here, Jesus performed a miracle. And they smile politely with that little smile. Like, yeah, sure he did. As if to say... That's simply a primitive interpretation of a very normal occurrence. They just sort of fluff it off. You know, these, these people, they, they were uneducated in, the, in biblical times. They were seeing some things, but I'm not so sure about miracles. But they said it was a miracle because they were just uneducated people. And what I've always loved is what one un, once one unbeliever who became a very strong believer, C.S. Lewis, said about miracles. In fact, he wrote a, a book on it called Miracles. And in that book, he had something very profound to say. He said a lot of profound things. But here's something he, very short, very simple, but very profound. C.S. Lewis said this. If God, then miracles. If God, then miracles. If there is a God who can act, then, there's, then the acts of God can exist. If a supernatural being exists, then supernatural acts can happen, right? A plus B. It's simple Trigonometry. Math wasn't my strong suit. But if a supernatural being exists, supernatural things can happen. If Genesis 1-1, the very first words in the scriptures, if Genesis 1-1 is possible, then everything else is possible. If you can believe the first verse of the Bible, the rest is kind of a cakewalk. If you can believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
that's a pretty good trick. If he can pull that off, everything else must be pretty easy. If he can make something or nothing, that's a pretty good one. If he can do that, the big miracle, let's say, other miracles can happen. If God, then miracles. And if you do not believe miracles are possible, if you believe they never really happened, and if you believe that life is simply spontaneously sprung from non-life, like evolutionists and naturalists do, then you already believe in miracles. If you believe that life spontaneously sprung from non-life, you already believe in miracles. And actually, if you think about it, there's no problem to turn water into wine if you can be the one to make water out of nothing. Right, church? It's not a big deal to multiply loaves of bread if you can make grain out of nothing. And by the way, God is never a prisoner to his own laws. He establishes natural law, yes. But that doesn't mean God can't come along and go, yeah, I'm going to do something different right now. In fact, God, um, God says, okay, I have this law. I'm going to supersede it with another law. He's allowed to do that. And before you say, well, that can't happen, let me tell you, it happens all the time. In fact, we do it too. Take, for example, gravity. Gravity. Things are earthbound, right? Gravity. We're all held on the, on the big ball. Anything with, with, with weight falls to the center of mass. Gravity. Y'all know about the space shuttle? Remember the space shuttle? Some of you younger millennials are like, what? The space shuttle. I think it stopped in 2011, somewhere in there. From the 80s until just a few years ago, that thing flew. Amazing that it did. The space shuttle weighed 4.5 million pounds. And the law of gravity says that thing's not going anywhere. But if you apply a couple other laws that will supersede the earthbound law of gravity, like aerodynamics and thrust, 7 million pounds of thrust were in those engines, and it takes it past our atmosphere up into space. So we've superseded. We, we've said, you know what? This is gravity and nothing leaves the ground. If we could figure that out, God can do miracles. <laughs> God can do something anytime he wants is my point. I'm just saying that at least think this through and let your faith be reasonable faith rather than ransacked faith. Faith, Reason through it. Reason through it. It can be rigorous and reasonable, which leads me to a third, and we'll close with this. Determined believers remain in their faith. Remain. Sixth verse, the last statement Jesus has for John the Baptist, kind of like a P.S. Tell him what you hear and see. Tell him what you saw in terms of miracles. This, this, and that. But then in verse 6, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The word offended Scandalito means to stumble or bait a trap, to entrap somebody. It's sort of a gentle rebuke to John the Baptist. He's saying, John, don't let this stumble you, man. Don't get hung up on this. Don't doubt. Because what I've just told these guys who are going to give you this message is enough evidence of who I am, even if you don't understand a lot of stuff, John. There's a lot, John, you don't understand. I know you're suffering in prison, but I have given these men enough evidence subjectively and objectively that could keep you tethered to believing in me. Determined believers remain in their faith. 
Jesus is saying, John, don't be offended if God doesn't do everything you want him to do. Oh, church, hear that this morning. Jesus is saying to us, don't be offended if God doesn't do everything you want him to do. Don't be offended if miracles happen around you, John, but not to you. Don't be offended if people are set free, John, while you're stuck in jail. Don't be offended, John, if dead people get raised up and you stay there to die. What I'm saying to you is this. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. But there's also a lot of stuff we do know. And I will never give up for what I know for what I do not know. I will always go to the place of evidence and lay my head on that. So just let me give you a parting sort of exhortation this morning in saying, let God be God and you be you. Even though there's things in your life that you can't figure out, right? I mean, I have enough evidence to believe that God is big enough to handle it. If you can't figure it out. So let God be the one who's seated on the throne and let you and I be the ones who bow before it. Period. He's the one. He's in charge. And if you're struggling with matters of faith, as they call it, wrestle with it reason through it and remain in it. Remain in it. Some of the best believers in history are those who have struggled with their faith. Men like C.S. Lewis we talked about earlier. Men like Josh McDowell, Francis Collins, Lee Strobel, Charles Spurgeon even said, I suppose no man is a firm believer who has not once been a doubter. Look up some stuff from Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to read that again. I suppose no man is a firm believer who has not once been a doubter. So all the prophecies that we study in this time of year, all the things we look at, they're against all odds, but they're not against our God. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Remember, if God, then miracles. With God, all things are possible. And I bring that back around full circle. That Paul was reflecting back on the birth of Jesus. And he said, you know what? In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. And might I be so bold this morning as to say, in the fullness of time in 2019 on December the 15th in the fullness of God in the fullness of time God is calling you maybe you've been doubting maybe you've been sort of looking at this this church thing or this Christianity thing from a distance and it gets kind of pumped up this time of year I understand that and you see a lot of it and and you're kind of looking at it from a distance but in the fullness of time God has you sitting in this room to hear this word this morning and God may be saying to you yeah I know that you've had some doubt yeah I know that you've had some questions I know you've had some struggles God's saying to you this morning let me be me you just be you. 
Let me handle that addiction. Let me handle that struggle. Let me handle that feeling of rejection. Let me handle all the stuff that you think is in your way between you and me. Let me handle that. Because I'm God, he's saying, and let me be me and do my thing. And you be you. John the Baptist was in a dungeon of doubt. And I don't doubt that there's people here today that are just questioning, right on the edge, right on the edge, saying, you know what? I real, I get it now. I get it I'm not here by accident. I get it I'm not on this planet by accident. I'm not in this room by accident. I'm not in this family by accident today. I know that in the fullness of time, God has orchestrated me to be here. I'm going to let God be God, and I'm just going to be me, and I'm going to trust him. Really, that's what Jesus was saying to John. Just trust me. Will you trust him this morning? Will you stand? Ah, it's good to preach. Been way too long. One Sunday, it's too long. The Holy Spirit is here this morning. There's no doubt, no pun intended, pun intended. There is no doubt that he is speaking to some of you this morning. And some of you are ready to settle it. Some of you are ready to stop looking from a distance and get up close and personal with this Savior that was prophesied over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, things pointing to who he is. Folks, he is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. I wonder if you would bow your heads this morning. And if you would agree with me this morning, there are several in here that believe Jesus is who he says he is. Can I get a hearty amen?